Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. It must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to register for NDC London, January 28th to February 1st. Back in the QE2 Conference Center in Westminster. Yep. And there's a great lineup of speakers. And of course, Scott Hanselman is coming back. And our friend Tess Ferrandez. So go to ndc-london.com to register. And if that isn't awesome enough, NDC is coming to Portugal. The new show is coming to Porto February 26th to March 1st. Two days of workshops and two days of conference. So go to ndcporto.com to register before December 31st and get early bird pricing. And get this, NDC is also coming to Copenhagen March 27th through 29th at DGIBN. It's two days of workshops and a one-day conference. Go to ndcmini.com to learn more. The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop deeply zooming and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 348 with guest Scott Stanfield, recorded live Tuesday, May 6th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man whose witty banter hasn't been the same since the writer strike, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here for your listening pleasure on this Thursday. Hey, Richard. Love a Thursday show. It means Tech Ed's almost over. We've been having a good time here in Orlando. And uh, if you're around, you're at Tech Ed, come see us at the Fishbowl. Yes, indeed. Down, it's called the Tech Ed Online Stage, but it's hard to miss. It's down near the vendor area as you come into the South Concourse. It's on the right. All right. We've been having a good time, as I say, and let's get right into Better Know Framework. All right, sir, what do you got? Well, you know, I went looking for something obscure. Ah, nice. And I think I, f- I, think I found it. Oh, okay. What do you found? 
Well, it's a it's an interface, and in the namespace system dot runtime dot interop services dot expando. Ooh! At first, I thought it was a superhero, who whose superhero power is uh, uh, losing and gaining weight <laughs> very rapidly. Expando, expando man. And uh, no, but there's an iExpando interface, and basically, this allows you to when you implement this interface. It gives you properties to add fields, methods, and properties and members to your object. Cool. This is different from adding attributes like you did earlier in the week. Yeah, that's right. So I immediately thought, well, who's used this? And upon going and looking uh, in Google searches and things, all I really found was, how, what is this and how does it work? And nice. how can I use it? <laughs> With not a lot of explanation, except there was some explanation iExpando is used in uh, JavaScript, in managed JavaScript. Oh. And uh, I think you actually found that out. Right, right. I Actually, VBScript and JavaScript implement iExpando, again, for dynamic member edition. Right. And uh, I also saw a post on John Lamb's blog where somebody asked him uh, if iExpando would be a good way to, uh, to access uh, Ruby from Visual Basic. And... Um, so, but I said, like I said, there isn't a lot of implementation details, but you do get uh, members like add field, add method, add property, get field, get fields, get member, and get members, get method, et cetera, invoke member, and remove member. Cool. So uh, it is an interesting thing. Oh, and also there was another note in the documentation that iExpando is used when you import a com object, you get the iExpando interface. Hmm. Now, I don't know what they meant by importing a com object, so I tried it with Visual Studio to uh, just add a reference to a com object and instantiate that in the normal way. And uh, I did not see, uh, I tried to cast it to an iExpando, and I did not get a successful cast. I got an invalid cast exception. So I don't know what that actually means. But... Uh, if you or anyone you know has has uh, implemented iExpando or or knows what that's all about, send us an email because now I'm really curious. Yeah, it so- sounds like something that should be dug into some more. Yeah. And you fire us an email at .NET rocks at franklins.net. And it might be a way to uh, sort of implement um, dynamic features without using the DLR, without having to uh, use another language. Right. So, Richard, what do you got for us? Oh, I got an email. This one's for you, actually. It says, really? hey, Carl, just wanted to thank you again for DNR and DNR TV. Awesome. DNR on my iPod got me through a recent 13-hour flight to the U.S. and 14 hours back to Australia. Yeah. United doesn't have seat-back entertainment on its 747s. They fly to and from Australia. So what else is a developer to do when the laptop runs out of power one hour out of Sydney? Ah. I loved part one of your processing audio show on DNR TV. It's mm. a topic I am very interested in, and I've been working on some of these ideas myself. So I was hanging out for part two next week, you said. Then yeah. what? Mark Miller shows up. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Mark Miller's show was cool, but where's part two? It's like when the TV networks show you a cliffhanger and then cancel the show during the summer break. You can't do this to me. Uh, Love the show and eagerly awaiting a part two of the processing audio show and your code so I can have a play. Cheers, Max Healy. Max, uh, part two is coming soon. That's all I can say. It's just been a, <laughs> it's just been a matter of scheduling and, and that, you know. Yeah, 
These are the things that you run up against when you produce shows on a regular basis. Yeah, there's lots to do. And, and DNR TV is doing really well. It really is. I, I'm really enjoying it. I, I really enjoy actually being able to see what people are talking about rather than just talking about it. And I feel like we've done a bunch of .NET Rocks in, a little, in the past just recently that would make great DNR TV. Absolutely. And we're, we're signing them up. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Dan Whalen said he would do one on Silverlight Development. Awesome. Um, uh, John Lamb actually said he would do some stuff on uh, on Iron Ruby uh, when that ships, and uh, some other good things coming up, as well as part two of my digital audio uh, show. And of course, uh, Scott Stanfield uh, back again for .NET Rocks number three, I'm pretty sure. He's the CEO of Vertigo my Software. One? Yeah, I think this is your third one. Oops, am I supposed to be quiet here? No, no, it's okay. We're all friends. Not that, you know. We're not friends with everybody, but okay. Scott Stanfield is the CEO of Vertigo Software, a Microsoft Gold partner specializing in designing and building unique software. Scott's a proud member of the Microsoft Regional Director Community and participates in the Microsoft Partner Architect Council. He's a frequent public speaker, keynoting from Microsoft and other industry events. Before starting Vertigo in 1997, Scott worked at Pixar in Point Richmond, California, which happens to be the current home of Vertigo. Scott holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Hey, Scott. Hey. Good to have you back on the show. Um, the aesthetics of software development was a great uh, .NET Rocks episode, one of my favorites. And, uh, of course, we saw you at Mix doing that incredible deep zoom demo. The whole hard rock thing was awesome. And the moment I saw it on stage, I leaned over to Carl and said, oh, we got to get that. Yeah. Thanks. That, no, was, that was amazing. Uh... That that was cool. If um, I don't I don't know how you guys give out hyperlinks over the air, but no, I think maybe to, you should just describe it. What you did? It's uh well, first of all, if you're listening right now and you want to check it out, you just go to hardrock.com, and there's a memorabilia button, or you just go to memo.hardrock.com, and probably most of your listeners have gone to Hard Rock. And not in ironic terms. I think there's a hardcore legion of Hard Rock fans that go and collect the T-shirts and browse the the real unique memorabilia on the wall. You know, they have 70,000 pieces of memorabilia. Wow. And a lot of it's in a warehouse in Orlando, so they can't show all this stuff. And you have to travel to over 150 locations in the world to see it. But if you want to see the highlights of the collection, you can go online and check it out. But without the Deep Zoom technology in Silverlight 2, it would just be kind of a kind of a flicker style um, you know, next page, next page. It, a picture of a guitar, a picture of a hat. Ex ex exactly. Yeah, it'd be it'd be really kind of kind of boring. Um, and so, what we're able to do is show. I think I think right now we have about 250 images processed and approved by legal, et cetera. Up, 257. Up I just checked. 257. Perfect. Perfect. It's one more than some magical power of two. Nice. Um, and. So we got all this stuff. It's actually quite a complex back-end process. There's a content management system that we wrote called Big Picture, and then we run it through. It's about a 30-minute kind of compile process, you could call it, where we do all the rendering. And those 250 images get blown into about 60,000 little JPEGs, and they are on the server and then collected on the client side with Silverlight Deep Zoom, and you can browse around. It, you can zoom in deep and see... Um, some some handwritten letters from the Beatles to their bodyguard. You can see Jimi Hendrix's first-class ticket and all the details from, on his TWA flight. You can see 
a Derringer pistol that Elvis used to carry, and it just all this, this neat stuff. But you can get in and zoom into a level of detail that you're not accustomed to seeing on the web. One thing I really like about the uh, Deep Zoom Composer is the ability to shrink down a very large graphic on, you know, the, the head of a pin on a lapel of some guy's high-resolution picture with him in a tux, right? And yeah. then as you zoom into that pin, you get a whole nother level of high-resolution pictures to zoom into. So, and there's yeah, really an infinite of number of mm -hmm. levels of Z-order. It's about five levels of Z-order. You, you get to a point, if you take high-resolution photos and start layering them on top of each other, you're, you're talking about the composition feature in, in the Deep Zoom Composer, where you can layer these pictures on top. And I use that. Yeah. In fact, if you're at the memo.hardrock site right now, just press the V key, the V for vertigo. It's our one little Easter egg. That zooms you way down deep into, um, I think on the website, it's some Beatles bobbleheads, and you can pull back using the mouse wheel just to start scrolling back and you can see that you're you're in about five different five layers deep and i tell a story about the beatles first concert um which is there at the paramount theater technically their their first their first well it gets very very technical but that was their i think their second us tour they started off there in new york city which is now hard rock it's hard rock new york so what this really was this was a great combination of of a user experience that had never been seen before with content that really can't be seen in this way. And so taking this, this amazing intellectual property, really, from Hard Rock and bringing it to the web like this was, was really exciting. And we were fortunate enough to have had early access to the technology to demonstrate it. Um, I, I have a little something to show you guys. Um, Ten minutes before this call, I took a 200-megabyte uncompressed TIFF image um, and used the, the brand-new Deep Zoom Composer. There's a new version in beta, and threw it up on the web. So if you go to scottstanfield.com, the blog entry I just made, this is a custom Gibson Guitar Hero 3 guitar. And um, what I did, I took this image. It's a composition of 12 different pictures. I used um, a pretty, you know, a, a high-end consumer digital SLR, the Canon 30D, stuck it on a special tripod mount from a company called Really Right Stuff, also from San Luis Obispo. They make really high, really nice, high-quality um, uh, tripods. Not tripods, but tripod heads. And it allows me to move the camera precisely over the entrance pupil of the lens. And so I have an X and Y freedom to take a series of panoramic images. And then I stitch them together with this program called PT GUI. Now, when you go through, I have just a static image embedded there. You have to click through scottstanfield.com slash Gibson. I'm Gibson having a hard time HTML. without a mouse, actually, on a laptop. Is there any trick Hit, to it? Uh, do control click. Well, it's funny because I'm using the default mouse handling code that ships with, um, that comes with the new uh, DeepSim Composer. But we have much better mouse handling code that we took out of our big picture technology and release it to the public, which is part of, you can go to CodePlex and download it. It's codeplex.com slash big picture. And it's just a simple class. It's two lines of code to integrate it with the uh, multi-scale image technology. And it gives you good cross-browser support. It works with um, CDNs if you have to distribute your JPEGs. But I think, yeah, see, oh, no, this one does it. Try Control-Click. Yeah, I got Control-Click we'll to zoom in and Shift-Click to zoom out. Yeah, there you go. They're, um, it's much nicer with a mouse wheel, though. Yeah, oh, it is. Of it's still kind of wonky. This this mouse behavior is 
kind of bizarre. I'm going to replace it. That's the funny thing. The, the deep zoom stuff that you get, this, this image tiling technology, there's no mouse handling code in the beta. So we released our own. Um, and then I think there's a version that comes with the new deep zoom composer. But this process for me to take this 200, I mean, look at this, this is a 5K by 12K yeah, um, pixel image. And that I bring up my calculator, 12 times 5. Okay, that's a 60 megapixel image. You can't, there's not a consumer or even right. a low-end professional camera that takes a 60 megapixel image. Now, how did, so did you make this with a scan? Is that how it works? No, so I took, I took a, a grid of 3 by 4 pictures. Oh. So ending up with 12, roughly 10 megapixel and images. And you, you actually took these pictures yourself? Well, this was, I should attribute it, it's one of my guys, Blake Sorrell, who's a former portrait photographer. Wow. We, rented the, we rented some lights, and you can tell it's nicely lit. And he took, he took this one, um, but he and I have been cohorts in this. And sort of the key th to making this thing so even was this cool multi-pano head, right? Yeah, so you take the pano head, that allows you to get precise, you eliminate parallax. Right. If you hold out your two fingers, hold out, hold out two fingers at arm's length, now pull one of them in by about a foot. And position your two index fingers. Don't do this while you're driving, if you have an audience. <laughs> <laughs> so position as your fingers overlap and close one eye. And so the fingers just line up, right? Now swap eyes. And one of your fingers jumps. So right. you, that's, that's parallax and extreme. And in order to do these really nice panoramic images, um, you have to eliminate the parallax effects in the, in the lens. So there's a, there's a technique. It's very kind of time-consuming. It's unique for every lens manufacturer. Do I see an and Xbox size. logo in one of the switches of this guitar? Um, there's the, you can see the little Xbox logo on the top left of the guitar. So to make a long story short, the technology and, and the, t the techniques for creating panoramic images have been around for five, you know, roughly five years. People have been doing these maybe five, maybe even ten years. It's just now you can take that image and display it in its full glory um, using uh, Deep Zoom. So on my desktop, I've got this 200 megabyte TIFF image. Open it up in Deep Zoom Composer and just said export. And then wow. I copy the file into my source folder and type up some notes on it. All right. Let me just run this whole thing down. So you got a good sturdy tripod, this very cool head so that you could move the camera very precisely. You yeah. shot this thing properly lit in a three by four grid. Uh-huh. Right? So you put out 12 uh -huh. images. Yeah. Obviously, the maximum res. And your f-stop was through the roof, I see. Like, this, all the camera settings here, you really got as much depth of the image as you possibly could. Exactly. And then... Yeah. I, yeah. Now yeah. you're in the computer. Now you run PT GUI and actually stitch the whole thing together. And I think I see, like, one artifact on this, a band across the center. Yeah, you're right. That would be a stitching artifact. Right. I, I pretty much just throw PT GUI on automatic. And let it And, and have thing. a go at it. Oh, yeah. By the way, I mean, they're, they're, if you look in the lower left-hand corner of the guitar, this is it says memo.hardrock.com, Vertigo, Duncan Chan in 2008. This is our little piece of rock and roll memorabilia. The guitar, that's a, that's a custom gold fleck paint that Jeff Atwood made. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, what is but this, this is a guitar? guitar hero guitar. I know Carl's a little okay, confused yeah. by this because yeah. being a real guitar it, player, he would not play guitar hero. He would suck at it. Yeah, he probably he would, would probably suck would. at it. Yeah, it I'd just bring my strings. axe. I'd bring my real Les Paul and my, you know, my amps, and I'd I'd go up against people that way. <laughs> you, you've seen the South Park, right? No, the I South haven't. Park I episode haven't seen where this they one. play Guitar Hero. Yeah, yeah, you'll just have to see it. But th this is a custom weighted guitar with a real guitar strap, and 
um, the custom Ooh. metal flake paint. Metal <laughs> flake paint. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, yeah, and it rocks. We use this at mix to play in our um, in the rock band competition, which we barely lost. But that was <laughs> that, that was fun. So okay, I'm I'm still running through the whole process here. We p- stitched yeah. together with PTQ. Now you have this 200 megabyte image. Yep. And then you loaded it up in C Dragon. Well, there's or what's a, it there's called a, now? It's well, C Dragon's the backend technology. Oh, Nobody okay. really calls it that. That's that's kind of the technology that you can. Uh, that's what Microsoft kind of has ready to go. What you do is you run this program called Deep Zoom Composer. All right. And you just do import. There's three steps. Import image. And because I only have one, the composition process that you just drag that one image onto the, onto the page. Then you go to the export tab and just hit export. Export images and Silverlight project. When you're done, it says um, you can view the project in blend because it creates a very simple um, kind of yeah, a very simple Silverlight project with a XAML file that has one element in it, a multi-scale image. And the multi-scale image is the thing, when we talk about Silverlight, when we talk about Deep Zoom or Sea Dragon, that is the feature in Silverlight that makes all this possible, is the control called multi-scale image. The multi-scale image then points to a binary file, a .bin extension for now, on a web server, and sitting next to that single file is a folder of images. And that folder, let me tell you, on mine, um, so it exports everything under your documents expression folder, DeepZoom Composer, and I have a folder called DeepZoom Output Web, and inside there is a folder called Generated Images, and I'm just bringing up a properties in the folder, and it has 512 files wow. in 16 folders. So 512 little 256 or maybe 128 squared JPEGs that are um, created at different zoom levels. And then on the client side, the deep zoom image, the, the deep zoom feature in Silverlight on the client, depending on your level of depth, retrieves those little tiled images and lines them all up. If I use the mouse wheel, mouse wheel step in further, it'll start retrieving the next set of images. Now, what's nice is that the user experience scales nicely. If you have a really fast connection or even a pretty slow connection, it pulls down, it, pull, it, it brings in the appropriate level of scale and then blurs it out. It, it's weird. It's, it's hard to explain. You just have to kind of play with it. It's one of those things like, it's like talking about music. It's better just to listen right. to it. It's better right. just yeah. listen to it. And it's the thing is you don't realize the magic that's going on here. I never felt like at any point I downloaded the 200 megabyte image. No. It and never you really helped. don't. That's it, because you really don't. It I never mean. staggered even. I mean, granted, yeah. I have a pretty good broadband connection here. But still, that's a lot of data. The fact that it, you know, immediately saw a guitar, zoomed in on a yeah. spot, and it just zoomed. I have a brand yeah. new $1,200 Toshiba laptop with Vista 64-bit on it and 4 gigs of RAM. And I saw absolutely no bonking whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, keep in mind, you're looking at a picture that is, if you took your high-def television at home and, and, and did it in portrait mode, you'd need... Four by well, roughly four by three of these because this, this <laughs> pixels are, are 5K. Right. Yeah. So it it is a very big image, and yeah. the, the the magic here is that you're only seeing a, a small portal of maybe what 400 by 400 pic- pixels. So even though you have a great user experience, you're not really able to see the entire image because frankly, your screen won't it won't fit. So um, I think you have what to I be do zoomed is, in so close and scroll across the whole thing to actually get yeah. the entire image. Yeah. Exactly. Now, we did have to clean it up. I mean, there was a hair 
at the bottom of the tripod, this really nasty hair that we didn't notice until you have the ability to zoom all the way in. And so we had one of our designers go in and kind of smooth it and clean up the image. Oh, I can totally see the stitching. That's funny. Yeah. yeah, there's a couple spots where you can see a white stretch. I think like, that I, I noticed not... that there's a couple of horizontal stitching yeah. artifacts, but there's no okay, vertical okay. stitching Ooh. artifact. I can't find okay, it. I guess mm. There is a vertical stitching artifact in the upper left quadrant of the image. Um, that, is an, that is an artifact of JPEG, actually. The problem with JPEG is it doesn't do boundaries very well. Yeah, straight lines are tough. Yeah. Oh, I see. Whereas um, micro, there's a new, I want you to write your congressman and get Silverlight to support HD photo. Um, the folks behind Sea Dragon are the same folks behind Photosense and HD Photo. HD Photo is a, you know, it, I'm not exactly sure where Microsoft is in the process, but it is a f- image format that will give us the benefits of um, a very nicely compressed image, small bandwidth savings. Um, the image quality would be better with half the size, roughly. Again, those are subjective terms, but they also give you a lossless alpha channel. Oh, wow. Which allows nice. you to do so lossless alpha channel with a lossy image, which would be great for composition or client side composition of images. That's a feature we really need. Also, it has a high dynamic range filter built into it. So it would allow you, and I've seen demos of it, it's, it's amazing. But I don't know how much I can say, but it's, it's just a, it's a nice new image format, um, better than. I don't, there's definitely a problem here in general, with photography, and that is, got all these camera guys. We're really talking about photography, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Oh, yeah. But, but it's, it's right. fascinating to just think about how far we've come here. Just, I feel like we're on the edge of this massive breakthrough in being able to bring all of those images together. Well, there, there's this, there's this we're, we're reaching a certain kind of media singularity, whereas, whereas we're bringing, I think the last time we talked, I mean, I think it was in a digital high-def video, and I have this uh, Canon... Um, not a Canon, a Panasonic HVX 200. Yeah, I've which since is gone their, out and got two of those because they're right. so yeah. awesome. They're awesome, aren't they? They are well, awesome. It, there's this pro, there's this there's this appendix, literally like an an appendix, as in it's an organ that we don't really need anymore, and it's the tape transport mechanism <laughs> right. that's glommed right. onto the side of the camera right. because we can now record onto 16 gigabyte P2 P2 PC cards or hard which drives. is a RAID array. Yeah. It's, it's or hard drive, you're right. But these P2 cards, it's, it's solid-state memory. It's really fast. They're also about $1,500 a piece. Yeah. Um, but it gives you the flexibility and the, the durability of the solid-state storage. But they've done it in such a way that's very fast. You can pretty much shoot, you know, 30 minutes. Uh, you could probably shoot a feature film on two of these cards. Wow. Well, and they have, the, um, what, 160 gig versions coming out now? Or something uh, the like hard drive, I think. No, yeah. no, that's the so, the P two cards are coming out with a new a new uh, ah new density, style. new density. Well, and so so you've got the whole video world moving to digital, and now we have video codecs capable of displaying beautiful video over the web um, in Silverlight. So yep. that's the whole video side of the world. Then you've got imagery. Now the problem with imagery is that with something like deep zoom technology, all the hard rock images were taken with. You know, some were some of the the hard rock images were taken for print. And when they're taken for print to go in a magazine or in a menu, for example, they're done nicely. They're done well-lit with a good camera. Somebody knew what they're doing. But a lot of the images were taken for insurance purposes. Hmm. So they were taken. Somebody walked up and just snapped the photo. And they weren't done with, with care. But that's okay because up until March of 2008, all online images were done with super compressed, tiny JPEGs. Right. But now that limitation had been removed. And to order to demonstrate the capabilities 
of deep zoom. We had to go out. I bought that that tripod head. By the way, is eight hundred bucks. You don't yeah. have to have it really. I mean, the software PT GUI will do a very good job if you just kind of stand there and haphazardly take photos. In fact, at Mix, that's kind of what I did. Um, but the software is there and the technology is there now where we want to go the opposite way and capture as much detail as possible. So we've gone from standard def video to high def video. We've gone from regular JPEG capture photography to high-end multi-pixel. Now the multi-pixel starting to matter. Remember before, people say, oh, you're going to throw all those, all those pixels away? You don't have to anymore. You can keep if, it. I don't know if you said this, but I think for forensic purposes, this would be a great tool. You know, for taking oh, photos of crime scenes and things like yeah. that that are, that are really high def. Aren't folks yeah. doing like out where they take several different several photos of exactly the same spot at, at different sort of settings on the camera Parallax. to get these really intense deep field effects? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's there's a show called Crime 360 where they set up a tripod and they get a laser reading. They shoot a laser out and somehow manage the depth. I'm not exactly sure how it, how it's working. Something to do with lasers. Lasers and computers and mirrors. <laughs> Lasers will fix everything. Blinky but, lights. I, mean, I think the point you're making here, Scott, is, yeah, we've had these high-res cameras, but because we can only put 20K images on our websites, what was the point? But yeah. now we could do all these really intense, detailed photographs, and now we have yeah. the tool so that you start out only getting 20K of the image. That's enough to look at mm -hmm. it. If you want to see more, you get more. Yeah. It, so what it does, it, you're right, it brings all that technology now and makes it available to the web. What it does, though, is transfer the burden back to the producer of the images. The quality of the camera of the photograph matters. Yeah, the quality matters. The, the management of the images matters. Just the wrangling of very large images. We know Vista loves copying very large images. Yeah. We know Vista does a great job. Do you hear the irony? Great job great of copying 64,000 <laughs> images. In fact, it, so, it does a great job of copying large files from anywhere to anywhere, actually. Great job. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys are being very sarcastic. <laughs> and I would point I out, know, SP1 fixed everything. Oh, sure, sure it did. did. Yes. Sure. Yes. All my problems. Mm. Should we switch to Vista? Talk about Vista for a minute? <laughs> I'm not ready I, to give this up yet. I just, I mean, it's amazing to me. All right, you, you, you compose all these images together. I understand that from a – when you took that single image, you stitched together three mm -hmm. by four. But So I did your V trick on the memorabilia site, and then all the way in those bobbleheads, and you keep pulling back. Yeah. How did you do that? Is it just the same technique? It's, it's called a sparse image, and with a deep zoom composer, it's relatively easy to compose that kind of an image where you have four images, and you drag the first big one on there. Then you zoom into it, drag the next one on top of that, and scale it, zoom into that, go to the third image, drag and drop it on, and so forth. At some point, you reach a limitation. Um, it, the limitation really is the you're dealing with a, a plane, a, a Cartesian coordinate system of 0.0 to 1.0 in the x direction and also in the y direction. So your x and y position is represented as a float, and in JavaScript, you quickly reach the, the, the limitations. So when you zoom way in on the bobblehead, you see the image starts to jerk around as you click and drag because we have a resolution problem. Right. So we're way in there. Um, C-Drag in itself has a limitation of 4 billion pixels by 4 billion pixels, which we calculated is 1.8 edibytes, Ouch. which is... ridiculous. Two orders of magnitude greater, greater or fewer, one of those two. Greater. Oh, no, greater or fewer than the number of stars in the universe. Oh, man. That's just so a lot. So we're probably not going to hit that limitation. So, I mean, 
and if anybody tries this out, when you go to the memorabilia site, you hit V, it puts you in on the bobbleheads, then you start pulling back. So I got I got to this point where I can see the bobbleheads, I can see the outfits, and then you see mm-hmm. the frame that they're sort of sitting in, and that's a much lower resolution image. It's a photograph of the fascia of the Paramount building. Yeah, right? that's right. That was so done with a regular... clearly see the that photo is the you know, the bobbleheads are still quite crisp. The suits are incredibly crisp, yet the building around it is much lower quality. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we took this really right stuff, you know, multi-panoramic head with a nice, I have a Gitzo tripod and a good camera to that spot, we could take a great image. But but that image in and of itself is actually done nicely. I mean, it's got, it's well, it's good lighting effects, et cetera. It's well composed. And, and it, yeah, it's, it's, interesting. it's very well composed and lit. It'd be tough to do that image any other way. What you need is um, a Mark III with like a 30 megabyte. But you know, couldn't you go photo. in and take close shots of different elements of that fascia, and then when you zoomed in on any of those elements, you would get this more detailed image? You could. You can see there's some nice um, blurring effect of uh, like a stroboscope effect on the cars and stuff. Right. Hey, this is Carl. I just need to take a minute to tell you about the latest offerings from our friends at Telerik. As you probably know, they've recently released their huge pack of web controls built on top of ASP.NET AJAX, That'll help you build impossibly fast and interactive applications in no time. But you've just got to check out their Windows Form stuff. It looks just like WPF. How about a carousel component in Windows Forms? How about a super powerful grid view control and 32 other desktop components with dazzling WPF-like features? In reporting, Telerik has this new design surface that simulates graph paper. And it's got so many advanced page layout capabilities, it looks more like graphic design software. So visit www.telerik.com and download a free trial. And make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Um, Scott, about that camera that you have, the EOS 30D. 30D. Yeah, I was looking at B&H Photo, which is, you know, in New York, and it's where I yeah. get my stuff. So they have a price of $800, but that doesn't include the lens. Oh, if you want the lens, that's another, what, $1,500? Well, it depends on what lens. No, no, about $1,100 for the the suggested lens. We we took some other shots where we rented a lens. We rented a $3,000 super fast lens. Nice. Uh, it was it was like a seventy to two hundred millimeter zoom lens, and those photographs have not made it up on the web yet. Although I think you know what. I think that the, the details that I have for the little Gibson guitar are wrong. I'll, I'll find out the specs for that. But the, um, it's but not the zoom range of the lens that makes it expensive. It's the f-stop. How well does it collect light? Exactly. That's what you want. You want yeah. If you really want to do these really good panos, what you want is a prime lens. Because prime lens, A, are cheaper. They're not zoom. But you want something with your digital SLRs, maybe around 120 millimeter. Right. But the weird thing is you stand. You know, I'm only standing six to ten feet away. So you don't normally think of using a zoom lens when you're standing ten feet away. So you're zoomed way in, but use the software to overcome this massive parallax effect. Because you're really, if you're only ten feet away, your angle of vision is, well, how many degrees? Maybe 20? Which yeah, is a it's lot. Very, it's very tight. So the slightest offset of angle is going to create bad parallax. Right. And that's why you use that panoramic head and you use good software to stitch it together. This may be like way... I mean, here's the thing. Anybody that goes out with, with us, with even like I've got a the camera I carry is a Canon G9. Wait, is it a G9? It's a, it's a small. I would. It's not really the kind of camera that you could fit in your front pocket, but it's small enough to carry around your neck, if that makes sense. So it's a Canon G9. It's 12 megapixels, and it creates 
beautiful images. But even those 12 megapixels are, are still a great candidate for deep zoom. Um, so it's you don't have to go as far as we went. That was mostly me. You know, guys, you know I have vertigo. I, I have this company so I can have excuses to buy toys. Right. Absolutely. So this was this was an excuse to go buy a nice tripod and a panoramic head and just goof off. So what about filters? Did you use any filters? Uh, no. This was all we used gels to balance the the lights. That but we no used no here. lens filters though. No no filters at all. Maybe a UV filter just to protect the the front. I, I really, you know what? Back on my blog, I'll, I'll do this. We'll, I'll totally document this scene. We have some photographs of the shot itself, so I can show you how we did it. There's this. Once you get into the X Y panoramic thing, it gets kind of complicated. I don't want people to think it gets that hard to do this. Mm, but, okay. Um. So w- one last thing. Um. The Hard Rock site. You know, we we ha- we now have a back end process where. There's, we have a little content management system. You make a change to one of the photos or change some text, and it will kind of automatically in the background just create the new set of images. So we have a continuous integration system, which is pretty cool. That's all part of our big picture technology. So we want to, we're working on doing a similar kind of site for other people. Doing a one-off image is easy, but doing a collection for photographers like Jonathan Zuck, another RD, great photographer. He and I are talking about how to get his his photographs um, on the web. And these guys are taking these really nicely composed big format images and, and can't really share them with the world. So it, there you go. Yeah. There That's you go. really what there this technology is all about is being able to get those big format images in a form better than a thumbnail. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you let, let, uh, kind of on the related, related to silver light and photography, but nothing about deep zoom is something else that we did that's kind of fun. So imagine you got your little point and shoot camera, a Canon G9 in this case. We have a chip and a two gigabyte SD chip from a company called iFi, and the website is eye.fi, and it is a two gig SD chip with a Wi-Fi network in it, a Wi-Fi antenna, which is pretty wild if you think about it. You got this little antenna in the footprint of an SD chip, and what it does when you configure it using some client software, when you take a photo, it will upload it directly to Flickr or drop it off in a folder. So the, you point and fly. click on the fly. Now, you have to configure it for your SSID, which is kind of a pain. So what we did, we went to Mix and had this little chip, and we configured it ahead of time to work with the conventions wireless. We would take a photo, and about a minute later, it would show up on our website. So go to vertigo.com slash mix, and you can see how we did it. I'm bringing it up here. And what we're using to display the picture is a Silverlight 1.0 control that we wrote called Slideshow, or Slide.show. And... Does that make sense? Take so a with Wi-Fi, that's your Wi-Fi connection off your camera. Yeah. And your camera doesn't have to understand anything about Wi-Fi. You, you actually no, configured the no card idea. in something else, I presume? Say it again? So your camera, this SD card that's actually uh, Wi-Fi, doesn't, yeah. uh, the, the camera doesn't understand Wi-Fi, right? Correct. Correct. So you actually have to take this card, stick it in a laptop or something to configure it? Absolutely, yes. So then you get yes. the configuration right. Then you take it out, you stick it in your camera. Now your camera... Is and and I, what else are you setting? You're setting stuff like every time you take an image, I want you to put it here. Yeah. So what we had to do is create a Flickr account and on the iFi card configuration, give it the Flickr name and password. Right. And so when it takes a picture, it uploads it. So now you've got images on Flickr. Then the on second the fly, thing you do as you take on the them. fly. That's right. As you take them. Then the second thing you do is you configure slide dot show to pull images down from Flickr. 
Then you put your slideshow Silverlight 1.0 control onto a web page. Then you have vertigo.com slash mix. Hmm. So it's this really cool way. Now, the only problem with it is every photo you take goes up on the web. So right, right. what we <laughs> did careful. during the show, for, for legal reasons and embarrassing reasons, um, we had everything go into a Flickr account, but had it not automatically publish them public. And then we had someone every hour just kind of go on and take a look at the pictures we took. So yeah, it's a you, little bit you of want to be able there. to have a little bit of editorial control. Exactly. What was cool about this is we had Vertigo send 18 people to mix. But the people back home here at the office that didn't go, they could kind of see real time what we were doing. In fact, they were doing the same thing. They were taking photographs of us, of themselves, so we could log in and kind of stay connected. Fire so it was back. Really, it was so much fun. It, we, we loved – it was a great it – was, it was – I don't know. It's the, the concept of being able to take a picture and not having to go, you know, a day later, screw around with hooking up a USB cable – and then right. try and remember, you know, I really love captioning and telling the story around photos, yeah. too. I also think that location coordinates are huge. Oh, gosh. Okay, here, okay here's something else. <laughs> Imagine, so Microsoft just came out with this tool called Microsoft Pro Photo or something. It's a stupid name because there's nothing, it's not a professional tool. All it is is a way to correlate. Yeah, it's called Microsoft Pro Photo Tools. Hmm. Stupid name because when you launch it, they actually tell you, well, it really should be called, um, in the help file, geotagging assistant. That's what it is. It's a geotagging assistant. And it allows you to um, either manually correlate your, G, um, your GPS coordinates with a photo. And once it knows your GPS coordinates, and you do it by scrolling to a position on an embedded virtual Earth screen, and then you drag the photo on top of it or something like that. Wow. And then you can reverse. You can. The system will, I don't know if the word is infer, but it will take your GPS coordinates and, and say, oh, you were in Las Vegas, Nevada on this street on Tropicana Avenue, which is kind of cool. So it'll tag so the got, image with that information as well? Exactly. So yeah. you've got GPS location and you've got human readable city, state, zip, country, etc. Right. And then what you do, you take the, what you're supposed to do is you have a GPS reader and you can buy these inexpensive Bluetooth headless GPS receivers. Okay. So they don't have any screen on them and they're small. Clip it to your camera bag and turn it on when you go out and shoot. And as long as your camera's date and time is synchronized with the GPS tracking, you know, the GPS log, then right. later what happens, you go through your photos or it will go through the photo and say, oh, this photo was taken at this date and time. Where were you in that GPS log? And then mm -hmm. it just sticks the coordinates on the photo in the access data. Nice. Just pretty cool. What a simple solution rather than all the fancy stuff. You know, one it of the is. applications that I've got in mind is I'm in the middle of a renovation yet again. This is my life renovating my house. And I really want to have an opportunity to detail photo bits of the house while it's taken apart. You know, I, I did that in the last reno, and it was incredibly uh -huh. valuable. But what would really take it up a notch is being able to have not only the exact coordinates of where I'm standing in the house, but the angle the camera was at so that you could actually, you know, synthesize all these images together into a 3D yeah. rendering of the house while it's taken apart. Okay, so so now what you, so you, you just touched on two different things. Number one, the, the GPS accuracy... Not high is enough. not great enough to have it be that interesting at that level. Right. Um, so I don't know. That's the thing I think is that, you know, probably 50% of the photos I take are at my house. So I would have thousands of little push pins because of the error involved. It's going to look like they're taking within a 100-yard radius of my house. That's one problem. Number two, though, 
of taking the images at different angles and having them stitched together, that's photosynth. Right. Mm-hmm. That is, so here we've come full circle. We've talked about three Microsoft image technologies, or four maybe if you can count, well, Pro Photo Tools, the Deep Zoom Image Composer, but now we're talking about Photosynth. And you can demonstrate Photosynth. Just Google Photosynth. Um, I'm sorry, use Live Search or whatever it's called. Um, and you, you'll find a demo site. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. We're, well, that just is it, search you know, for I've never Photosynth, heard it pronounced. you'll find it, it, something. Is it Live or Live? Uh, live. Okay. But anyway, labs.live.com slash Photosynth. Okay. okay. So you go there. Oh, cool. To go there, but it's an ActiveX control because it's going to do some cool stuff with your GPU. Um, and then, what do you do with it? Well, okay, so photo. Well, I don't know if that. You know what? I might be speaking too soon. That image might not be the right one. But basically, they do some amazing um, photographic analysis and infer your position in XYZ space and the angle in which you're taking the photo. Right. So pretty soon you, and I have seen examples of this, where you just walk up to an object and take random pictures. And the more random, the better. You don't want it to be just like from one particular plane. You want all this, I guess it's really six degrees of information, the X, Y, and Z location, space, and the pitch, yaw, and whatever the last one is. So you take images from all these different angles. Maybe you only want four or five dimensions. And then you so see you have 100 photos of, of a beetle. Stitch them all together, and you can now kind of move around in space to see all these different zoomed-in, zoomed-out images. Add that to Photosynth, and then stick the whole thing on Surface PC, and Bob's your uncle. I've seen demonstrations of this where they uh, – I mean, I think the classic one is the, is the Notre Dame Cathedral in, in Paris, yes, where right. they've yeah. just composed all these images that they pulled off of Flickr – yeah. into a solid fascia uh, imagery of the... Of and what the was cool about that, cathedral. Richard, is that those pictures were taken by different people at different times from different places, all right. with different cameras and, you know, different yeah. levels of zoom and well, whatever. At one point, they even showed it. One of them was a poster that he got right. integrated yeah. in as well. The right. software right. just said, I can use that yeah. and, and use it to fill mm-hmm. in. And the result, when then you get into that whole ability to zoom so that people who took very close-up images of certain gargoyles, you had a really crisp look at that gargoyle, but you pulled back, you still saw the whole composition. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've had a chance to play with that technology where uh, locally here, just go take a bunch of photos and stitch it all together. It, it, was really, it was really cool. I mean, this is an area where Microsoft is really... It, they're really taking advantage of their amazing research and some of the acquisitions they've done. Mm. But they've been able to pull it through all the way to the release of a product. And yeah. that is difficult to do, to go from research projects to release in a, a product that, like Silverlight that has to be done in multiple languages with export restrictions. And you know, go from, to go from R&D and make it to a product that actually ships is something that Microsoft does well. I mean, I bash them a lot for Vista, but that's just one piece of software. There are other areas, frankly, anything in Scott Goo's organization now. Yes. uh, That stuff is just really good. They've got it figured out. Yeah. When When it comes to the web development and Windows development with WPF, it's just fantastic. There's nothing you can't do now with this stuff. Um, it's just, that was actually one of the problems in building the hard rock project is that we didn't know where to stop. We're like, what are going to be the limitations here? Because this has never been done before. And that's the kind of project that, that I like to do at Vertigo. I like to do the things, the, the, the ones that haven't been done before. I, I want to build the software that hasn't been built. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who, uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, 
provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. Actorreports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. I always thought when I was hearing the story of what you did for Hard Rock that you guys went out and did all the photography, but you grabbed any pictures you could. There's actually only one photo in there that Vertigo took, and Blake and I took the photo of that Gibson, I'm sorry, of the, um, the Bo Diddley guitar. There are other ones right. that we just haven't had time to integrate, but yeah, there's only, of the 257, one I took with, and that's, that was a, a stitched together image of 58 pictures. Have you been doing anything with video since the last time we talked? Oh, video world. No, you know, I've, I've got this really expensive video rig and I don't know. I think my focus in 08, it's been digital photography. Yeah. Yeah. I got to do more video. I feel guilty about it. Jeez, I need a blog. There's too many things to do. I am kind of doing Twitter. Yeah. My Twitter, I think my Twitter bio now says there's no excuse for boredom in my world. I, there's this, there's this problem with, um, almost too much, gosh, this is be a whole nother topic. <laughs> By the way, I, I do recommend Witty. Witty is a, is a WPF Twitter client that one of my guys, Alan Lee wrote. It's, it's very nice. Um, Where my is Twitter is C sharp, S E E S H A R P. If you guys want to, anybody wants to follow along what I say, I would, I would like my Twitter just to automatically be my blog entry. I, I, you know, I have such a hard time blogging. Um, I think partly because that feedback loop is not there. Yeah. So it's yeah. one of those things you just have to do it knowing, as Jeff Atwood told me, it's like you, you have to blog for Google and your audience will come. You can't blog for when you start, you don't know who you're going to have. And eventually people come across you and add you to their feed. Right. But without any critical math, it's like, ah, uh, we've got too many other things. So right where now, can we but, find uh, Witty? Um, can you Google Witty and Twitter? Is it Witty Twitter? Like code.google.com uh, P Witty yeah, Twitter? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. So it's a Google app. No, we. <laughs> it's just released instead of being released on Codeplex because this was a project that these guys were creating. Um, it's not released from Vertigo, but it's done by a bunch of people at Vertigo, ah. and we just they just decided for some reason I forgot what it was to release it under the the Google Code license. Um, I would have preferred Codeplex, but. It's cool. Scott, as long it's as I got there. you on the phone, and, and some of our listeners might be interested in this, because I've been doing some digital audio programming, mm-hmm. I found a, uh, first of all, do you know what ASIO is? Yeah, yeah, all right. digital, yeah, yeah digital so, sound. Yeah, it's digital sound. It's a driver system that uses very low latency buffers and uh, tries to get, it, it yeah. was really made popular by Steinberg, they, the guys that invented yeah. it, for yeah. software synthesizers. Cubase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For software synthesizers and plugins where the, the computer is actually generating tones. So when you play a note on a MIDI keyboard, you want the sound to come out as quickly as possible. So a yeah, low propeller head is the best example of that, yeah. I think. So a low latency, low size, uh, sh- small uh-huh. buffers are, are, are key. So if you go to shrinkster.com slash XRE, you'll see this code project, uh, ASIO driver access in .NET. Ah. And the guy only demoed it with a driver called ASIO for All because ASIO drivers are somewhat different mm-hmm. from driver to driver and hardware to hardware. Uh-huh. I tested it on my Mark of the Unicorn 24IO, which is a 24-in yeah, out box. Yeah, and uh, it sort of huh. blue screened on me. <laughs> in a, in a 64-bit. 
And it wasn't Vista. It was a 64-bit oh. uh, XP. But uh, wow. needless to say, I had to set the CPU type in the in the compile properties to x86 to get it to work at all. Oh, my gosh. Why are we doing this? is like configuring modem haze AT command. I know. I swear to God it is. Exactly. Audio, I don't know what happened, but, but high-resolution audio was just kind of – I mean, there are people at Microsoft that care a lot about it, but – the product that they ended up shipping with Vista, it just it's it's a really it's well, hard because you thing. need basically a real time OS. Yeah. To to do this well. And, but and Vista has got and Vista's got all this other stuff happening in the background. They load on the yeah. They load yeah. up your computer with uh Yeah. Crap. That's why yeah. he's a Mac. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> For audio. Uh, you guys are all gonna get picked up by the black. I know, I swear to God. Swear. I can Most, hear them now. We have so many listeners at Microsoft. We're sorry. All right, we're sorry. Well, here's, <laughs> I, I have I have here my little speech about that. Um, oh gosh, there was. I mean, here's how. Here's here's the thing. I worked for two of three of Steve Jobs's companies, yeah. Pixar and Next. I never worked for Apple. In fact, I never liked Apple. I grew up with an Atari. Yeah. And to me, the Atari was the black sheep, and everybody was in the Apple IIe, and yeah. couldn't, I couldn't stand it. But I caved when the, the second-generation iPods came out because the, the wheel seemed so innovative. So I got an iPod, and then I realized iTunes on Windows, which, which is how I was managing my music, kind of was not good. Mm. So I bought, for a $200 iPod, about a $2,000 iMac to manage my music collection. Mm. Nice. It was embarrassing, but like, I told myself, okay, this will just be for music. People hate us, you know that. <laughs> People hate us for saying shit like that. You know this. I just went out and bought a $2,000 iMac, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no yeah, problem. I know. Well, again, it's, it's R&D purposes for, yeah. for Vertigo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's a write-off. Right that, that's why you have a company, so you can buy stuff like right, that. Right, of course. Um, of course, it, then I bought 60 iPods for my employees, but that was just because it was a good Christmas gift, and we had a good year. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, that was but probably did, bad. Did you end up using the iMac for anything else? Did it take No, over? no. But see, the, the iMac wasn't portable, so I got a MacBook Pro. Right. Yeah. And my, my, I told myself, well, it runs Vista. In fact, it runs it really well. I found, Both I've can't. heard that the MacBook Pro is like, you know, I know of people who have completely gotten rid of all of their PCs, all of their Mac Pros, yeah. and just use a MacBook Pro for everything. So here's my thought on this. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, the, using the MacBook Pro for Vista. Um it does. It is really fast. In fact, you get five nines as a score. Okay, so it's probably the fastest laptop. Wow. But the problem is the keyboard is not meant for programmers. And on top of that, the the power management system when you're plugged in running Vista on a MacBook Pro doesn't seem to work as well when you're running Mac OS X, and it gets really hot. So to have a great development experience, you need an external keyboard to get the keyboard layout you're accustomed to, and you also want to get your hands off the heat. And then once you have an external keyboard, you might as well throw a mouse and hook it up to a video screen. If you do all that, it works really well as a development platform. Um, then you, should, you might as well have just bought a regular Mac. Well, no, not really. Yeah, except, except you get the portability. And, but then you realize, and here, here's, here, this is how this whole, the iPod is the total gateway drug, right? Because along the way, I'm like, okay, I'll get an iPhone. Because honestly, the touch experience is amazing. The killer app for the iPhone is Google Maps. You know, right. The other stuff is pretty cool, too, but Google Maps is great. Um, it sucks as a business phone because it doesn't have exchange integration yet. So I tell people, great consumer phone, not so good for uh, businesses yet, but I still use it. And then along the way, I got a 30-inch screen because I had a little extra money at the end of the year. And then I finally got a MacBook Air. So at the end of the day, I started as an Apple hater, and I've got all this stuff. 
and I'm totally conflicted, right? You know, I'm gold partner, and here, here's what I say. Here, here's, here's how I justify this to myself now. The consumers will be driving the expectations in the business software arena. Mm. We write business software, but the people hiring Vertigo to build applications are being informed by what software should be based on their consumer experiences. They're using a TiVo at home. They're using an iPhone. They're booting up their MacBook Air in 25 seconds flat. I challenge you to find a Vista box that boots in under a minute 15, Mm. and it shuts down in five seconds. That's the best demo. Watch this. Mm. MacBook Air, click one, two, three, four, five, and it's shut off. It takes me 30 to 45 seconds minimum to shut down a Vista laptop. And then guess what happens? You jump the gun, you shut the screen, it sleeps during the shutdown mode, right? So then when you go to use it, you turn it on, and it resumes from sleep to continue the shutdown operation. Nice. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's, I do. What, that's all my ThinkPads. And, like, it's just so damn frustrating. Microsoft needs to build their own damn hardware. Well, that's what it comes down to. I mean, you know, the the Mac has always been, they've written their software for their yeah. hardware. And they when you, the they, thing. Yeah, and, so they avoid this whole multi-driver level stuff. Mm-hmm. They avoid oh, that. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, they what, can, we, And they can recently, totally dictate their behavior. Their, yeah, I think yeah. something like 20% of all the crashes were due to NVIDIA's drivers or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And, and God bless Microsoft. This is the strength of the platform is the openness that allows anyone to come along and extend it. It's, it's how we got to where we are today. But now software, I'm sorry, hardware is a commodity. Right. I, I, you know, I don't buy any kind of insurance on it. They're pretty much obsolete now in 12 months. It's a, they're practically a commodity. So that idea of taking a machine and then extending its usefulness and its life over a period of five years by upgrading parts, people don't do that anymore. They buy new ones. Um, maybe it's still a little bit early and I, you know, $2,000 is not something to sniff at. Well, it's not worth tearing them apart. You pass them on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You move exactly. that machine down the line to the yeah, you you know, do. next person down and you get the new one. Oh, check. So how would you pass down a Vista laptop easily? Oh, I think I may drop it down the stairs first. <laughs> okay. So do you see where I'm I, Okay. So I have to tell you, I did this last week. I got the new MacBook Pro and I was going to trickle down this other MacBook Pro to one of our designers. And I hooked up my old MacBook Pro, stuck in a FireWire 800 external drive, and used Time Capsule to back up 50 gigabytes. It took about an hour. And, and the Time Capsule software is built in. I shut it down. Actually, we wiped it. Okay. Then my new MacBook Pro that had never been turned on before, turned it on. I think you just boot off the CD, and you tell it, it asks you, do you just want to continue? Or I forgot exactly what it was. It was like two clicks. And you say, no, I want to restore from a Time Capsule image. And about an hour later... I had my exact computer duplicated. Now, I think that works well on the new MacBook Pro. I think it works well because these are very similar pieces of hardware. Yeah. Where when I, when I, I, I know what you see your point was when I move from one lap to the other, I always snap an image with a Cronus of the draw of the machine before I even power it up, you know, so that I have literally the boot up image ready to go back to. So that's how I revert the old machine for the new person. But I image the old machine before I start so that I have right. exactly the state of my machine before uh-huh. I switched. But, but everyone listening to this call can do what you just said. But, it's, but we are a small fraction of the industry. Right. What I think Apple has done is made it so someone like my mom, I can call her and say, Mom, just plug in a hard drive. And it's like a one-step configuration to do the time capsule thing. And it just works. I couldn't believe it. I mean, oh, it just drives me nuts that they're beating us, right? It's unbelievably powerful. And, and there's no way that would work 
in the PC world with the diversity of hardware. I've actually yeah. brought an image from a different computer up on a new computer with a different motherboard yeah. and so forth and watched Windows have fits about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm going to call it right now, guys. The, the consumer space is, is, is eroding because of Apple. And Apple doesn't care about the business space. We will continue to be the dominant platform in business, especially in the back office. I mean, when it comes to, you know, five, six, seven years ago, the war was .NET versus Java. We won that war. I really right. do believe, which was bravo for us, which is great. The new battleground, I see, are in two places. I mean, forgetting the search space and the advertising and Yahoo and all that. Um, the battleground in the development space is Flash versus Silverlight. Okay, we need Silverlight there because that is how the 20-year to 30-year-old software model of licensing classic software needs to evolve. Is where your application just runs over the web via Silverlight. Okay, so you're going to see my guess is a version of Office, etc. I mean, Photoshop Express was the one thing that came out recently that really blew me away because that was the app I always said, oh, you'd always run that locally. <laughs> you right. know, people say, well, why do, why do you write Windows apps? Well, you know, for something big like Photoshop, you have to run local. Well, there's Photoshop Express. Okay, now it's not going to do everything, but still, it's pretty darn good. Silverlight is going to be our bridge to those two worlds. The other battle line is in the consumer space between um, Apple and Microsoft. Um, I'm having a hard time recommending Vista at this point to for consumers that aren't technically savvy. And previously, the arguments have been, oh, apples are too expensive. It's such a niche. That's, those lines are kind of broken down now. For 1000 bucks, you can get a, the low-end Mac laptop, and it kind of works. So, so we, have, we, collectively, in the Microsoft space, have a lot of work to do to recapture that ground. Um, Zoom will always, you know, sure, WMV is a great, or WMA is a great player, uh, great spec. Apple's definitely locked, locks you down when it comes to iTunes. But they've gone so far ahead by locking down not only the music industry, but really taking great steps in the video industry that I don't mind paying two bucks for or a buck for a song because it's so darn easy. Well, you know? And isn't, like, isn't digital rights dying? thing is dead. I, I pay 20 cents more to remove DRM, right. which I think is a great business model for... You know, I could go through a process. I have the audio technology to go through a process to remove it simply by playing it back and recording in high resolution. Right. I just don't have the time to do that. So to me, 20 cents, or if the DRM stuff starts to go away, that's great. It's, DRM is one of those things that nobody wants to talk about. But it, it, bottom line is our artistic creations of movies and TV and audio, it needs to be protected somehow because otherwise we're – I don't know. This is a whole other show. How do yes, I feel about is. DRM? All I know is I've, I've never – I'm not being – what's the word? I don't know. I don't use BitTorrent. I buy every movie. Yeah. You know? Well, you are someone who produces this sort of content on a regular basis. You've got respect for how hard it is to do a good yeah. job of it. Yeah. You know, it and, just and mean, you can't yeah. you can't live with the hypocrisy of of not respecting it. The popular musicians today, like okay, look at Hannah Montana, right? So Disney's making money selling her CDs, but they really make the money in the merchandise sure, and in the touring. So it may just be that the music itself, once digitized, needs to be free. You know, quote Richard Stallman, information wants to be free. Um, it's just that some of the other artifacts is where they make their money back. Well, and I look I, at the it, Madonna deal where they, you know, they sure they signed her for four albums, but it's the two tours, and they made yeah. it as a package deal. Because they know yeah. they'll make their money on the tours. This, the, the music, need, it's advantageous to make it free because it fills up the seats in the tour. Well, and not only that, I mean, you just can't compete with free. And that's the 
basic problem. I mean, let's say you're a band and you want to put your stuff out there. You're not going to put up a web page and with little uh, low res samples and say, "Here, buy my CD for fifteen yeah. bucks." There's no way, just because somebody yeah. will just pass you over and go to the next band. Well, here the thing is that this is what's what's happening in the confusion in the music space and starting to sh- you know obviously shake out with big chains going away. When's the last time you guys have walked into a music store? I know there's people on here that still listen to vinyl and all that. That's great, but as an industry force, that's changing. Video is just a few years behind that, right? And so those changes are coming to video. The only reason why it's taken so long for video to, to really experience these problems is because the files are so darn big. And that's you know, temporary. Until yeah, until, I mean, look at what YouTube did to that, right? YouTube made yeah. it easy to flasherize anything. I know. You know. We need a silverlight YouTube. That's what we need. Um, we well, there is. <laughs> there's Funny something called video show. <laughs> Funny you should say. Go to vertigo.com/labs, and it's the top left link. There's something called video show. It's a little private label, you know, YouTube with Silverlight 1.0. It's uh, it's actually pretty cool. Nice. You can download it. It's a project. It's on, uh, the source code's on CodePlex somewhere, and you can play with it. So we've got a little video stuff. We've got a little audio stuff. Um, it works pretty well. Awesome. Now, now isn't the strength that. of Silverlight ultimately going to be the fact that uh, existing .NET developers are going to be able to do this? Uh, yeah. In fact, I can tell you, um, Hard Rock, we, we threw a lot of developers on it over two months to finish it. And the fact that the developers did not know Silverlight, but they did know .NET, made it really easy to make that transition. So these guys are already doing C-sharp. They were able to join the project. Maybe they didn't know XAML, but that's okay. Maybe we had, we had other people doing it. But we're using WCF so the client can make a call to go get information about a piece of hard rock memorabilia. Right. You know, it's still on the back end, below the waterline. It's all technology we know. The, you know, you look at an iceberg, the piece you see is the part above the water. That's the right. silverlight bit. But underneath the water, it's stuff we've been doing for years. And that's the beauty of the Microsoft development platform ecosystem is that .NET as a vision continues to keep pulling us forward after it's been released for what, back in 1999? So that is still incredibly strong, and I think that's where Microsoft has an advantage over Adobe, is that they're trying to retrofit the tools going backwards for Flash. They have the penetration, but the tools and the ecosystem of developers that we have in the world today already kind of know .NET. Now, they might not have the design aesthetics, which is fine. Um, We've had a design department at Vertigo for eight years. But design is starting to become not a competitive distinction because the Silverlight space has opened up the world for developers from non-traditional sources, like from advertising and media, media areas. Right. So we're running into competition in areas that we hadn't really seen before. They might have one Silverlight programmer, and they sure as hell can't actually ship software because it, at a certain point, you just don't have a software shipping culture. You might have a design culture. Yeah, but actually knowing how to ship software is a separate skill. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. So you still need, you know, we use Scrum, we, uh, we continuous integration, we have bug tracking, you know, all, all the stuff that, that most people have in a software development shop. It's just when you add a design component to it and do Silverlight as your, as your gateway, your entry to it, it becomes very interesting. And with that, I think we can do very good stuff. You know, to, to continue on the conversation we were having about aesthetics in software, you know, what seemed like a sort of a niche kind of .NET rock show back then seems to be really important these days. I mean... I, I would point out that was only a year ago. Huh. Yeah. I mean, it really is changed. It, it, things have changed so much. And it's not just mix. It's the whole culture. It's the whole... The tools have changed, as we've been talking about. And mm-hmm. suddenly, any kind of website that is doing anything that wants to attract people is going to have to mm-hmm. use some of these technologies. And you're going to... Your paths are going to cross with those creative people. 
Yeah, yeah. I, to me, it comes down to one simple thing. Good design is good usability. Well, they don't always come together, right? And you, they, we need to distinguish usability from graphic design. And a lot of times we get requests from clients, say, can you make this sexy? Well, sexy is, you look at an Indiana, okay, look at Star Wars. Here's a perfect example. Look at Star Wars 3, okay? Um, you take a slice, any given film, Actually, let's look at Star Wars 1, okay? Any given shot that you would cut from the film strip, a 35-millimeter film, and look at it, it's going to look beautiful. Because George Lucas and those guys, the cinematographers, they know how to light a shot. They know how to set it up. It's going to look beautiful. But as a movie, it stinks. The acting is stilted. The dialogue is juvenile. The story is confusing. Yeah. Okay? When you build software today for the web, you need both. You need the cinematographers to set up a beautiful shot, and that's the graphic design. But you need information architects to make sure that the user experience is pleasant. It doesn't have to be a piece of software that people fall in love with. It just needs to get the job done. It looks like, you know, it's almost like the big picture was lost. You know, the whole, the continuity from shot to shot, from... Mm -hmm. Yeah, from character to character. But I would also add in that that in every movie, you other than George Lucas's insanity of tweaking movies, you know, yeah. hand shot first, <laughs> movies get cast and they're done. Software yeah. evolves. Never done. Good point. Yeah. yeah. It, we, we, it's funny. Our industry is still our industry is still young enough that we keep reaching out to other mature industries for metaphors, um, like architecture in general, just buildings. But you're right; those things tend to be done. Yeah. Once a bridge is built, you just don't touch it. You keep it clean. Yeah. <laughs> you paint it. And That's it. You it. paint yeah. it and you sweep it off and you leave yeah. it alone because it's yeah. right. And we just don't do that with software. Mm. Imagine no, the no. difference in construction if you expect to continuously upgrade that bridge without ever closing it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. But imagine you have a client come along and say, we have this little creek that we need to bridge. Just It's just for, it's a demo bridge. It's only going to be up for a week. And then three months later, you find out, oh, no, no, we're still running. In fact, we have hundreds of thousands of people crossing it every day, and it's not performing well. Right, you know, and we blame software, you. A lot of software is meant to be kind of a patch or a short-term solution that becomes something bigger than what was intended for. Um, and, and that, because it is soft and easily malleable, that the stuff tends to live and, and morphs and Frankenstein. So what we have to do as an industry, uh, we've adopted Scrum because of that, where we don't look at the software process as something static. We look at it as something that can change every sprint, and we embrace the change. It does mean it changes our pricing model. You know, we tell our, we tell our clients, like, look, we don't know how much it's going to cost you. We're not going to pretend. We can guess. We'll tell you that guess. But it's just like, I don't know exactly how much gas and how long it's going to take me to drive from San Francisco to New York. I know roughly the route I'm going to go. I'm going to probably take 80. I don't know where I'm going to sleep along the way. And if I get a flat tire, I didn't, you know, we'll make some preparation ahead of time, but you you adapt. And that's what humans do really well. We can change. We can adapt. And when you build software that mirrors the business process, which is also changing and adapting in near real time, then it works. You know, we don't have the luxury of having an 18-month plan. Our clients have a three-month plan. And so you have to have a software process that fits that as well. And that's worked well. And at the end, it's, you know what? It's just getting complicated, guys. <laughs> Building we software, need another it hour. Harder yeah, and harder. It's, it's I know. tough stuff. It yeah, is. Maybe we should have a different show. You should have your own show again. You I should request. have your own show, Scott. It's true. I wouldn't know what to say. I don't have that much you to talk you about. You don't know what not to say. <laughs> Listen to yourself, man. Oh, that's another right, show. Well, that's another show. Yeah, I should be making notes. That is a lot. I do. Yeah, I, I think definitely you, like. I think you said that's another show at least six times. We should we should write those down 
and make those the the, the format for or make those like the first shows. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's ten, it's my time. I think we've been talking now for almost an hour. Just and over I hope an we hour. haven't alienated people because we've gone off in the weeds and digital photography. But I'd like to think the enthusiasts and the people that are passionate about computers and our technology that infection spreads to uh, to other areas of, of of technology that touches our lives. I mean, we could talk about replacing your incandescent and compact fluorescent bulbs with uh, with uh, LEDs at home. That's something that kind of fits our space, right? Yeah, but LEDs kind of a, don't light. They they don't have yet. light. Yeah, I know you need a lot more lumens. But there's ah, there's that that stuff's fun to talk about. I'm looking around at other stuff in my office. Uh, Ray Samuel's audio is a guy. His name's Ray Samuel's. He makes these beautiful little pocket amplifiers for the iPod. You could trick out an iPod or Nano to have this incredible. I want to take a photo and show you guys, but I have this little portable audio package that is just heavenly. I love it. I think it. we've got to go. It's time. Yeah, I know. I think, I think we've got to stop. I've only had three cups of coffee this morning. All right, let's, we should wrap it up. We'll... I'm just getting going here. That's the problem, you know. It takes me an hour to wake up. <laughs> oh, All right, well, well, we'll do another one. Maybe we'll talk about the uh, Scott Stanfield podcast from hell. You know, maybe, yeah. maybe we can convince him to take some time out of his busy schedule. All right. Tell us all about the toys he's bought that day. Yeah. <laughs> toys of the day. Toys of the day. Toy of the day. All right, Scott. Thanks a lot, man. You're, hey, you're awesome. What can we say? Thanks, man. All well, right. I appreciate you guys putting up with me. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.